The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. So let's go ahead and go to the book of Revelation. If you haven't been with us, we are going through the last book of the Bible, which John called the, the Apocalypsis. That's a Greek word, just apocalypse is how we translate that in English, and it just simply means the unveiling the revealing, kind of like pulling the curtains away so you can see the grand drama, and that's exactly what this is, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. So John promised from verse 1 that this book, 22 chapters in your English Bible, would be all about Jesus Christ, unveiled, revealed. Much of it revealed about him for the first time in human history. Even the 12 apostles with Jesus did not see much of the content of Revelation that John wrote down in this book at the end of his life as he was the only apostle remaining who hadn't been murdered. He was probably an elderly man in his 80s. We don't quite know, but he did write probably in the mid-90s A.D., a good 60 years after Jesus had died and risen and gone back into heaven. And John was in prison on the island of Patmos. It was called there in the Mediterranean Sea, and his crime being a pastor. That's going on here in America today. That's going on in San Jose, California, just minutes away from where we are. But that's been typical throughout church history, actually. And so John uh, was serving the Lord Jesus Christ, preaching boldly, and the unbelieving political leaders didn't like that, so he was arrested, probably beaten, then confined to hard labor on the island of Patmos. The twilight of his life and the Lord Jesus Christ in his grace appeared to John at that time. Jesus Christ in his glory. Not the humble, lowly Jesus, but Jesus Christ in glorious, majestic, resurrection, sovereign glory. And he talked to John, ministered to John, encouraged John, touched John, and then commissioned John to write the book of Revelation. So we've had the privilege of going through this, and basically it's, it tells us how the world ends. It was first, uh, the first couple of chapters, the first three chapters, were written literally to those seven churches in Asia Minor where John ministered for years as a pastor. They were under duress from persecution. So Jesus wanted to minister to them immediately, and he did with the first three chapters with the word of persevere. Persevere even unto death for the sake of the gospel. There would be reward for you, for your faithfulness, not necessarily in this life. As a matter of fact, the reward would be in the next life. The reward is guaranteed, but it's in the next life. Reward in this life is not guaranteed for the Christian. So that he gave seven promises to the overcomer for their faithfulness. And all seven of those promises to Christians, to the church, you don't get in this life. They come in the next life, if you read them. And so John was writing and Jesus was wanting to encourage the saints who were being persecuted. But it was a message for all churches, for all ages. And then Jesus moves from what was going on historically 2,000 years ago to the future. Hey, John, you're a a Jew. You were raised in the synagogue. You were born and raised in Israel. You know the Hebrew scriptures. You know the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel, more than just about any other Old Testament book, laid out the future, really, world history, the kingdoms of the world in succession, and also hinted at how the world would end, the last kingdom of the world before Christ Return, But Daniel didn't tell the whole story. He came up just a little bit short, and then God said, nope, we're going to seal this information for a later time. Daniel's writing about 580 B.C. How's the world going to end? So John knew that information. John knew Daniel, knew it well. And so John is now privileged to hear the rest of the story. It's like reading a great book. And... You're on the edge of your seat. You're engaged. It's real. 
and you don't get to read the last two chapters, the culmination, the highlight, closure. That's what it must have been like for many Jews until John came along and got to have the book of Revelation revealed because it's Daniel part two, and it's the end of the story. It's the completion. There's closure. It's the fulfillment all the way into eternity. So that's been an absolute blessing to study Revelation together as now we are in chapter 19. So have your finger there. Before we get to chapter 19, just a reminder of that verse I keep mentioning, and that's chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed is the one, and the understanding here is if you're a real Christian, because you can understand God's word. The Holy Spirit lives in you, and he's your teacher, and he helps you understand spiritual truth in a way that an unbeliever cannot. So the understanding, this is a promise to a believer. Blessed, this, uh, the word blessed, makarios, uh, blessing. There are seven of these blessings in the book of Revelation. I don't know if you've been paying attention. There are seven. This is the first one of seven blessings to the reader. Blessed is the one who reads, and that's what we've been doing. Blessed is the one who reads, and those who hear... It means you're trying to understand it. You comprehend it. So blessed is the one who reads, the one who hears the words of this prophecy, and that's what revelation is. It's a prophecy. It's divine revelation. It's not human information. So blessed are you if you read this book. Don't neglect it. If you hear it, you truly try to understand it. And then third part, and heed or keep or observe, or obey the things which are written in it. For the time is near, the time is near means we're at the end of the age now. World history has basically reached its culmination with the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now all that is left is his return. So let me ask you, it'd be interesting, we've been in this for weeks. Have any of you been blessed by the book of Revelation and how? I would like to know. If you want to email me and let me know, that would be great. That would be a blessing to me to know how you have been blessed. Some of you have already done that. In profound ways, you've been blessed. And I specifically want to know how you've been blessed by the content of the truths of the book of Revelation. In other words, how has God blessed you with his truth? What a testimony. We shouldn't just reserve testimonies for new Christians at baptism. Every Christian should have ongoing testimonies in their life of how God is working. So that would be a blessing to me and a blessing to our body. How has God blessed you as you've studied the book of Revelation? Here's one way that I have been blessed, and maybe you have been blessed as well. It's all, most of it is about the future. It's, it's true. It's going to happen this way. But all we hear from the world is a counterfeit of how the world will end. Did you catch that this week? The announcement to the world at that very important world meeting and climate that the world is going to end in nine years. Did you hear that? In the news, it was in the headline of all the news. Boy, if you didn't hear that, you are not paying attention. That's something to know. The world is going to end in nine years. Now, maybe those of you who heard it, it'd be interesting to know what you thought. Those of you who have been with us, you're believers, you've been with us, you've been here week by week going through the book of Revelation, which John the Apostle and Jesus claim is about the future and it's true. And it's really going to happen this way. Yet the world keeps shoving their counterfeits in our face of how the world is going to end. And so we heard it this week. John Kerry, the new climate change czar, spoke on his megaphone that reaches about 4 billion people this week, basically announced that we have nine years left before the world ends. And only we as humans can do something about it. That was the implication. Now, when I heard that, uh, I was not shaken. I was not intimidated. I was not made fearful. I didn't panic. I wasn't a subject to manipulation by the government or pol politicians at all. But I guarantee millions of people who heard that announcement were. They were made fearful, probably put in a panic especially the younger generation 
with no biblical framework or foundation of truth whatsoever. So I wasn't panicked. So hopefully, as a Christian, if you heard that, you weren't panicked at all. My reaction was, that's ridiculous. That's a lie. That is demonic, satanic deception. That is evil. That is wicked. That is mean. Because God's already told us how his world history is going to end. This is the truth. And I immediately thought of 2 Corinthians chapter 10. that tells Christians it is their obligation in an ongoing manner to... We are at war. It's spiritual warfare. And spiritual warfare happens in, with ideas and in the mind and in the thoughts and the exchanges of human beings. That's our battle. We are warring against satanic truth, satanic deception, lies, and Satan lies and spews lies through human beings. And Paul says, don't put up with it. Take every thought, every word, every idea, every ideology, every statement, every assertion, captive, prisoner, to the obedience of Christ. Subject everything to the authority of the word of God. That's what that means. And if it is false, Paul used iconoclastic language. Smash it. Destroy it. Expose it. Shame it. That's actually Christian biblical apologetics. This is in the world of ideas. This isn't physical warfare. This is spiritual, intellectual Verbal, conversational, relational warfare. Praying against the lies. Speaking out against the lies. So I pointed that illustration because it was recent. It went out to probably a, his megaphone is, a, to, like I said, to at least about 4 billion people. My megaphone is to about 400 people. But the word of God is more powerful than any human words. So that was a blessing to me. God, thank you for telling me how the future is going to un go about and conclude and end. It's not happening in nine years through climate change. It's happening through the glorious predicted return of Jesus Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords of planet Earth. That's how it's going to end. Everything is going to happen according to plan. That's where we are in Revelation 19. So... Uh, we're going to cover this whole chapter today. We've been going through the tribulation um, where John gave detailed description of a, a real time in the future that will last seven years long. And the first three and a half uh, things begin to get really bad. And Satan is kind of allowed to put his players in place. The first three and a half years, the first three and a half years that Jesus called uh, birth pangs, preparatory times for the great tribulation. That's the first three and a half years. We already saw that. That was the seal judgments of Revelation 6. Then we got to the middle of the tribulation where the Antichrist basically assumes power and is exposed and begins to, is probably possessed by Satan himself. And that was the trumpet judgments that we saw in Revelation 8 and 9. And then now, he moves forward. He's slaughtering believers and followers of Jesus all over the world. He creates his own religion, even though he's utilizing a one-world religion at the time to rise to power. He's got headquarters in Babylon over in the Middle East by the Euphrates River. He's establishing a one-world government with one-world currency and whittling down the kings and the rulers and the power brokers of the world to a small, convenient group that can be controlled of about 10 kings, whom he will elbow out of position and usurp sole authority, as we saw by the end of the tribulation. He continues to slaughter followers of Jesus Christ, and he hates the Jews. He hates the Jews with an unbridled, unmitigated passion. And he's slaughtering some of them. But God is protecting a remnant of believing Jews throughout that entire three and a half period at the end of those seven years, which Jesus called the Great Tribulation. That's Jesus' term, Matthew 24, the Great Tribulation. And then we got to 
Revelation 16, where we saw the seven bowls of God's poured out wrath on the earth at the end of the tribulation of how the, the world is going to end, world history, by way of God's judgment on the wicked of this world. And that was in Revelation 16 with those seven bowl judgments. Bowl number six and bowl number seven highlighted the destruction of this world empire that's spearheaded by the Antichrist in Babylon, by the Euphrates River. Bowl number six and bowl number seven also said there's going to be a war. The kings of the earth, spearheaded by, no doubt, the Antichrist and his false prophet, are going to bring armies from the nations of the world, and they're going to gather up against Israel, according to Zechariah 12, uh, Ezekiel 38 and 39. And they're going to begin to slaughter the Jews, who they can find in Jerusalem and Israel. And at that moment, Jesus will come, his second return, and he will intervene. And we're going to see that in Revelation 19. And that's how world history is going to end. That is truth, people. That is true. That is our foundation. That's comforting for the believer. That gives us stability of mind. That allows us to be discerning and cut through all the lies and propaganda of the world in what is called news. You are in the minority. You're swimming against the stream. You probably feel lonely. No one understands. Nobody gets it. That's because that's true. You are in the minority. Few there be that find it. But before we get to Revelation 19, I'm just going to thumb through real quick. You can either just listen to these verses carefully because it, it's a big picture study. There are 20 plus verses in Revelation 19. That's just too much to do in one two-hour sermon today. I mean, sorry, in one 50-minute sermon today. So we're just going to do big picture. And then remind you of important hermeneutical tools or how to properly interpret Scripture. One thing we've been hammering away that hopefully is in your brain, can't really understand and appreciate Revelation the way John wrote it unless you are familiar with the Old Testament. Because again, Revelation is filled with probably over 500 allusions or references from the Old Testament. Many prophecies that were predicted in the Old Testament are literally fulfilled in the book of Revelation. And so I just want to read through a couple of prophecies from the Old Testament, specifically on the promise that God said he would send his Messiah in the future at the end of the age to make all things right. And the way God was going to make all things right was twofold. He would send the Messiah who would come at the end of the age to rescue his people. That's a good thing. That's a blessing. But he would also send his Messiah at the end of the age, not only to rescue his people, but also to crush his enemies. To crush his enemies. And we're going to see that in Revelation 19 today at the coming of Jesus Christ. I, I don't think people stop and pause and think of the implications of what it means that, oh, Lord Jesus, come. Or I can't wait till Jesus comes at the second coming. Because what you're saying is, yes, he will come and he will rescue. He will come and save. He'll come and do justice and make things right. But he's also coming as a warrior to slaughter and to kill. Keep that in mind when you think that Maranatha, oh Lord Jesus, come. And we'll see that plainly in Scripture. So let's look at some of these Old Testament prophecies saying that Jesus, or the Messiah would come at the end of the age. First Messianic prophecy, uh, Genesis 3.15, you know this. Adam and Eve sinned. God cursed everybody involved in the sin. Death was the ultimate curse. And in the midst of the curse, God gave a promise. A promise to save and redeem and provide salvation for those who would eventually repent. And he would send a Savior. And that Savior is predicted in Genesis 3.15 when he's talking to Satan or the snake. I will put enmity or hatred between you and the woman Eve and between your descendants, which I think are unbelieving human beings like Cain and on and also her seed. I will put hatred between descendants of you and the woman. This would be believing people who come from Eve, seeds plural. And then he says, and he, that's a specific descendant or offspring of Eve, a man, a human, real man who will come from the loins of Eve, which is Jesus, he shall bruise, he shall 
crush, he shall destroy you. That is violence. That is warfare. So you have both things. The coming of the Messiah to graciously save by virtue of his death on the cross as he gets bruised on the heel by Satan. And in that very same verse, he is going to crush. He's going to crush Satan and the works of Satan. And Revelation has already told us that the coming Antichrist works by the power of Satan. So the Messiah is going to come and he's going to crush the greatest work that Satan has ever done. And that's through the coming future world Antichrist. So there's the first. This is 4,000 B.C. This was 6,000 years ago. God promised this. A Messiah who is a savior and a warrior. He is coming. Psalm 2. I don't, when we think of the Psalms, we think many times of uh, different thoughts, but we usually don't think eschatology or the coming of the Messiah or the Messiah coming as a warrior to destroy his enemies. Listen to this, Psalm 2. This is a prophecy of the coming of the Messiah at the end of the age. The psalmist, this is 600 B.C. plus. Why are the nations in an uproar? Why are the people of the earth devising a vain and foolish thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against, get this, against Yahweh and against his Messiah, his anointed that's Jesus. They're about to go to war. This is Revelation 19. God is in heaven watching all this, and he's laughing. He scoffs them. You are pathetic. And we'll see why they're pathetic in Revelation 19. God will speak to them in his anger. God is a God of wrath. It's holy wrath. It's perfect wrath. It is deserved wrath. It is coming. Wrath. It's inescapable wrath. And here God says, But as for me, Yahweh, I have installed my king upon Zion. I have installed my king in Israel. I have installed my king in Jerusalem. This is talking about the future. There's a future for Israel. I don't understand the amillennialists or those who say there is no future for Israel. One of the reasons I don't understand that is because I like to ask those people, those theologians and believers, so you don't think Israel has a special and distinct future? No. Do you believe Jesus is going to come again? Yes. Do you think he's literally going to come again? Yes. Do you think he's literally going to come out of heaven and land on earth? Yes. Well, where is he going to land? Uh-oh. He's going to land in Israel. He's going to land, he said in Acts chapter 1, he will return just as he left. That kind of sounds like Israel has a future. He's not going to land in Independence, Missouri like the Mormons try to tell us. Going back to Psalm 2, we're getting ready for a war. And then God says, I will surely tell you the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance. Uh, verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. There it is. Jesus is coming to wage war. Isaiah 11, verse 4. Jesus, when he comes, he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips, he will slay or slaughter the wicked. Isaiah 11. Isaiah 61, where Jesus, the first public sermon Jesus ever preached that we know about in Luke chapter 4, was in a synagogue. And he was handed the scroll of Isaiah. He unrolls it to our Isaiah 61. He begins to read it and he says, to, and then he puts the scroll back and he says, this day, this scripture has been fulfilled. I am the coming Messiah. He only read verse 1 and 2, first part of verse 2. He didn't read the second part of verse 2 that says that the Messiah has come to proclaim the day of vengeance or wrath of our God. Jesus didn't read that part. You know why? Because he knew that his first coming was all about grace and being the humble Savior. He reserved part 2B for the future at the end of the age. He will. He will come. He will proclaim vengeance on behalf of God. Isaiah 63, very important one. Listen to the imagery in Isaiah 63 because you will find the imagery again in Revelation 19. This will just help us to walk through Revelation 19 quickly and smoothly. Isaiah 63, 700 B.C., Isaiah gives this prophecy about the coming Messiah. Remember, 
Isaiah's book, 66 chapters long, many prophecies about the Messiah. Some of them are talking about the Messiah being a savior of sin and even being killed by the people and killed by God. Isaiah 53, how can that be? Being a humble savior. And at the same time, the same prophet in the same book gives these kind of prophecies that talk, no, he's not coming as a humble savior. He is coming as a victorious, militant warrior to destroy his enemies with the vengeance of God. Listen to this. Isaiah 63, verse 1. Who is this who comes from Edom? That's over in the, in the east. With garments of glowing colors from Basra. That's near Jerusalem. This one who is majestic in his apparel. This is the coming Messiah. Marching in the greatness of his strength. Glory, glory, hallelujah. It is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Well, why is your apparel red? And why are your garments like the one who treads in the winepress, smashing the grapes? Well, I have trodden the wine trough alone. And from the peoples, there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger. This is what it's like when the Messiah comes at the end of the age. I trampled them in my wrath. And their lifeblood, their blood is sprinkled on my garments. We will see this in Revelation 19. Here comes Jesus. Here comes the Messiah. He's got a white robe, and he's got blood all over his robe. That is not the blood from the scars of his hands because he died as a savior. It's not the blood of the saints who were persecuted during the tribulation. It is the blood of his enemies that he slaughters when he returns again. Clearly, right here, that's what it says. This is literal. Their blood is on my garments, and I, and I stained all my raiment, for the day of vengeance was in my heart. The coming Messiah. Daniel chapter 7. Verse 13, I looked in the night visions, one like a son of man was coming. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. What does he do? He's coming to fight against the beast. Who are, and the beast who is persecuting the saints. And then Jesus will relieve the saints. And the, the saints will take possession of the kingdom. And it goes on to say in verse 26 that the beast, the Antichrist, will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed Forever. We'll see that in Revelation 19. And then finally in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 1. Behold, a day is coming for Yahweh when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you, for I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. This is future and it's literally going to happen. God is going to gather all the nations against Israel. Every nation on planet earth will hate and despise Israel without exception. And there will be a war and Jerusalem will be captured Houses will be plundered. Women will be ravished. Half the city will be exiled. The rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Verse 3, and at that very moment, then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. This is the battle of Armageddon. We already talked about it. It's going to be highlighted again in Revelation 19, the battle of Armageddon at the end of the tribulation before the millennium. And in that day, the day of battle when Christ returns, in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. John says, I saw heaven opened, and basically it was Jesus, and he lands in Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives in Israel, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will split in the middle from east to west by a very large, that's literally going to happen, an earthquake like the world has never seen. Verse 9, and the Lord Jesus will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one, and his name will be the only one. Hallelujah. Speaking of hallelujah, let's go to Revelation 19. Boy, we've been looking forward to this. I know I have. I'm, I'm, a, I'm done with all this bad news, this tribulation stuff, this depressing stuff. I mean, there's good news in there. But it's leading to something, and it's leading to this glorious good news. It's time for a celebration. We saw the seven bowls. God finally pours out his wrath. He holds back no more. He said in Romans 12, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Be patient. No more patience. Patience has run out. God's cup is full. And so what is, and we saw that in chapter 17 and 18 in the first part of 19 is kind of a telescope and an enlargement of these seven bold judgments of how the world ends. And it, were, it, it ends for the believer gloriously with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's the theme of Revelation 19. The second coming and the final coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Christ. So I divided it up into three sections just to kind of help us walk through it. And this is how we'll approach it. Verses 1 through 10, I just call preparation for the coming of the Lord. Preparation. Or to be more technical, you call it celebration. Celebration. The celebration for the coming of the Lord. Then verses 11 to 16 is the revelation, the unveiling, the actual coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Where, where John said he saw heavens open, that's revelation, that's the unveiling of Jesus Christ in his glory, that's 11 through 16. And then finally it concludes, verses 17 to 21 are the results of Jesus' return, and I call it the devastation, and that's what it is. The world is completely devastated, the unbelieving world, all earth dwellers are devastated. The false prophet is devastated, and most of all, the Antichrist is literally devastated. So let's, go to, let's look at the celebration, the revelation, and the devastation, starting at verse 1 of chapter 19. By way of reminder, chapter 17, verse 1, after the seven bowls were revealed, one of the seven angels goes to John and said, okay, let me tell you more details about these seven bowls of how it's all going to end. And we, so we saw that in chapter 17, 18, and now that, that continues, chapter 19, all the way up to verse 8. So those all go together, pretty much the same time period, the end of the tribulation, describing the bowl judgments. And so after looking at chapter 18 and how God is going to finally judge Babylon and destroy the one world government and begins to collapse from within side and the one world economy and the one world religion all finally meet their demise and it's beginning to completely unravel. And finally, the prayer of Revelation 6, 10 of the martyrs under the altar were crying out, God, avenge us, avenge our blood. The blood of the ground cries out for justice, as it did in the days of Cain and Abel. Anytime somebody gets murdered unjustly, the blood of the innocent cries out from the grave to God, give us justice, give us recompense. That happens with the 374 babies that are slaughtered every day in abortion here in California. Their blood cries out. Now it's millions and millions crying out in a cacophony together to God, give us justice. It's coming. And that's what's being celebrated here, or the preparation of Christ's coming. The celebration, let's read this, verses 1 through 10. After these things, I heard something like a loud voice, John says, of a great multitude in heaven, probably an angelic choir, and they were saying, Hallelujah! Verse 3, and a second time they said, Hallelujah! We had a song that had Hallelujah in this morning. There was another group in verse 4, the 24 elders and four living creatures. They fell down and they worshipped and they said, Hallelujah! That's three hallelujahs. And then in verse 6, another voice, probably another angelic choir, in the middle of verse 6, Hallelujah! 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 So these four hallelujahs plus a praise God. That's why I call this the celebration. What's interesting is what they're celebrating. They aren't necessarily celebrating um, spiritual salvation of individual souls for Jesus dying on the cross. With hallelujah, this is the first time, I think, in the New Testament where the word hallelujah occurs. The first time that hallelujah occurs in the Bible, I think, is in Psalm 104. And hallelujah, it's a compound word, hallelujah, praise, and then yah is the Hebrew word for God. Praise God, hallelujah, that's what it means. If you read, and it's used 24 times in the Psalms, and in the context, the first time the word hallelujah is used, it's saints rejoicing, singing, and praising God for his judgment on sinners. They're praising him for his wrath. So consistently, that's how the word hallelujah is used in the Old Testament. Not, in, not coincidentally, that's how it's being used here. They are saying hallelujah because they are praising God for his wrath on the wicked. That is not how we use hallelujah today, typically. It's used flippantly a lot of different ways, and those, a lot of those false preachers on TV, bring ye the tithes, hallelujah, give me that money, hallelujah, and they're just throwing it around. Flip. They're, they're blaspheming God's name, because hallelujah has God's name in it. We need to be careful with that. So this is a celebration of God's judgment, of what he's going to do during these seven bold judgments in preparation of Jesus Christ, and also 
looking forward to Jesus coming, hallelujah, where he's going to redeem his people by destroying their enemies. Hallelujah. This is celebrating, rejoicing, and worshiping God for his holy wrath. Boy, the, most people can't handle They can't stomach that idea. Oh, I thought we want to celebrate a nice God, a happy God. No, we need to worship the true God, a God of holy wrath. So let's look at it. After these things, I heard these angels, a great multitude, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Notice there is salvation there, but that doesn't only mean spiritual salvation. Salvation also means rescue, rescued, literally physically rescued. And that's the way it's been used predominantly in the book of Revelation. That's almost how it's used most of the time in the Old Testament, salvation. Physically rescued. And glory and power. God's glory is all of his attributes revealed to man. His power talks about his might and his ability to rescue, to crush his enemies. Notice we worship him in the fullness of his attributes because salvation, glory, and power pretty much are representative of all of his attributes, which are almost countless so we don't have a one-dimensional idea and worship of God. We worship God because he's a God of love. No, that's not all. That's stilted. That is unbalanced. We worship God because he's a God of salvation and glory and power. And his glory and his power reveal his wrath, his judgments, his holiness, his justice that makes things right, that recompenses sinners for their unrepentant sin. Hallelujah. Verse 2, because here it is. Here's the reason. Why are we saying hallelujah? Because his judgments are true and righteous. When God pours out his wrath on sinners, it's the right thing to do. They deserve it. That's what it's saying right here. This is the word of God. This is contrary to human thinking. This is not intuitive. This is not common sense. This defies human understanding. But this is what the angels are rejoicing over. This is, they know this. They think perfectly. Did you know that, the angels? We don't. Because his judgments are true and righteous, for he has judged the great harlot. There it is. That's what they're celebrating. Who was corrupting, polluting, distorting the whole earth with her porneia, her immorality. And God has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. As Believers were being slaughtered the world over. They finally get vengeance. And a second time, they said, hallelujah. <laughs> so the first hallelujah is for the fact that God judged the enemies. The second hallelujah in verse 3 is for something different. What is it? Well, her smoke rises up forever and ever. You know what? It's celebrating. Not only is God going to slaughter his enemies, but they're going to be punished forever and ever and ever. Their, their slaughter and punishment, the evil ones, it's final it is complete. It's irrevocable, irreversible. That's what they're celebrating. Again, this defies human thinking and understanding. Boy, this doesn't seem very loving. No, God's been very loving. God's been very loving and patient for 6,000 years of world history. Waiting and waiting and waiting. All throughout the book of Revelation or the tribulation, he's crying out with the, the, the eternal gospel. Believe, repent, escape, flee the wrath to come. That's the heart of God. His grace and mercy, his patience. But now his cup of wrath is full. No more mercy can fit in it. And the 24 elders see this, and the four living creatures up in heaven. Who are the 24 elders? There are 24 elders up in heaven. Because they're next to the four living creatures, which are like seraphim or cherubim with wings like angels that Isaiah showed us. These are real beings before the throne of God. And they fell down, and they worshiped God who sits on the throne. And they also said, Amen. They were echoing that. They said, Hallelujah. And their Hallelujah is for the judgment and the wrath of God that is just and deserved. That's what they're worshiping. Hallelujah. And a voice from the throne was saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. And these are the, the resurrected saints up in heaven. Join in the heavenly chorus. Worship God. Worship him for his holy wrath. Give praise to our God. Verse 6. And then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, probably the, another angelic choir, maybe the same, like the sound of many waters. It was thundering, deafening, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, hallelujah, like lightning striking over and over and over again. Just all these angels screaming out, Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. 
Praise God, praise God, praise God for his wrath, praise God for his justice, his judgments, for his recompense. For the Lord, our God, the Almighty, reigns. Amazing. Hallelujah, four hallelujahs. Like I said, this rejoicing over God and praising him is foreign to evangelical Christianity thinking, I think. But it's not to a, to a Jew who, who knew God and knew Yahweh. This was customary. This was expected. I, I think of Moses, when God led Moses and the over a million Jews out of Egypt, and they went through the Red Sea, and as they're going through the Red Sea, Pharaoh and his chariots are chasing them, and probably, you know, the Israelites are looking back, uh-oh, here comes Pharaoh. Panic, probably, but they got through. God got them through it. And then God closes the Red Sea on Pharaoh and all of his chariots, and they're just utterly wiped out, the most powerful army on planet Earth in that day, and they just watch how the chariots are immersed and drowned and then floating dead on the water. And you know what happened after that? Is they're, they're looking at this, Moses and the entire company of Israel, including all the women and children, they didn't mourn and weep. They celebrated. That's what Exodus 15 says. Exodus 15 says, and as a result, the, the Israelites believed God and Moses, and Moses led them in a song of celebration. And it's rejoicing. It's not gloating so much over the death of Pharaoh as it is giving God praise. Thank you, Lord, for being a just judge, for rescuing us, for saving us. But he does mention the fact that Pharaoh got wiped out, that the, God's enemies were killed. That's cause for rejoicing. The entire chapter, it's called the Song of Moses. I'm not sure how the tune goes, but the words we do know, but I think, I'm just thinking maybe this, the song kind of went like this. Pharaoh, Pharaoh, oh, let my people go. Anyway, I'm working on that. <laughs> Give me some time. I'll come back next week. Um, and then after that, it says that Miriam, Moses is, oh, you didn't know I could sing, did you? But anyway, so Miriam, after that, she gets her tambourine. That wasn't enough. And she gets all the ladies, and they get the ladies' choir going, and she's slapping her tambourine, and they're singing too about the death of Pharaoh and the judgment of God. Something like probably, ding dong, the king is dead. <laughs> I need to work on that one too. I'm just guessing we don't know the tunes that went with the words. If you don't believe me, read Exodus 15. All right, let's get back to the passage here. So we have a hallelujah chorus. Verse 6, one of the hallelujahs is transitioning from what God has done through judgment through the seven bowls and also preparation for the coming of the Messiah. That's verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him, not only for his judgments, but also looking forward, and that is for the marriage of the Lamb. The marriage of the Lamb. God's getting married. Jesus is getting married. If you're a Christian, you know that. He's the bridegroom. He's going to get married to the church, according to Ephesians. He will get married to the church. But the Old Testament clearly says that Yahweh is the husband of Israel, believing Jews. So God is a husband of believing Jews in the Old Testament, Israelites, and also those who believe during the church age. And they are one believing family. That's who... Yahweh is going to marry. And by the way, the institution of human marriage was based on the reality that God already planned that he's going to marry his beloved. God determined that in eternity past. That's a reality. That's, that's what everything is looking forward to. The marriage supper of the Lamb. Where God will be wed with his people. Marriage is the most intimate personal relationship that there is. God created it, and that's what God desires with his people. Full and complete intimacy. We don't have that now, but we're working towards that. It'll be glorious. And if you're a Christian, even if you're single, even if you're divorced and single and you're not married, you're engaged. And you have a wedding coming. And God said he's preparing his precious bride for that day. And that's what this is talking about. Looking forward to this. The most glorious wedding celebration in the history of the world when God's people will be perfected and be committed to Jesus Christ himself and the Trinity in an inviolable, the most personal, intimate, perfect 
relationship imaginable. It goes on all throughout the millennium and through eternity. That's what this is describing. So let's rejoice and be glad. And we've gone through all these years of world history and so much evil and disappointment and persecution. And it's all for this glorious reward that God had planned from eternity past. The marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. God makes us ready and we also make ourselves ready through obedience and the power of the indwelling spirit. Verse 8, and it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints will be perfected in the future. We'll give a resurrection body. We won't have a sin nature. We will be perfect. Only then will we be suited to be married to Jesus Christ, the bridegroom who is perfect. Verse 9, then this angel who had one of the seven bowls said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. If you're not invited, you won't be a part of the glorious celebration. Those who are not invited end up in eternal hell. Invitation. You know how we have invitations to receive the gospel or an invitation at the crusade? That's where this comes from, this invitation. To be saved, to be invited into the family of God, to be married to Christ, you have to be invited. And it's at God's initiative. It's all his doing. It's his work. And he knows who's invited and who isn't. Kind of like when you prepare a wedding, you know who's on the list. you got 150 people you're inviting. I don't like Uncle Fred. He's obnoxious. He's not getting invited. God's invited a limited amount of people. God has invited a select number of people. He knows them by name. This is consistent with Election, which we can't fully grasp in our mind, but at the same time, God makes the plea and calls anybody who's invited, come, come, repent, believe. That's a legitimate and sincere call. So blessed are those who are invited to this wedding day. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. If this is, blows your mind away and it's, this is too good to be true, <laughs> thank you, Mr. Angel. These are true words of God. Believe it. How do I practically apply the book of Revelation with all this crazy stuff? Oh, here's, here's a key right here. These are true words of God. Believe it. Start there. Believe it. Then let the Holy Spirit do application in your life and in your heart. Then I fell. At, so John is just overwhelmed at this, the judgment that is going to come finally. I mean, here's John. He's a prisoner. He's been persecuted. Domitian, he's going to get his, the persecutors. So he's going to get justice. And then the glorious idea of the marriage to the, the Lamb, His blessed Savior, Jesus Christ. He can't handle this. So he fills, John falls over, probably on his face, and he fell at the feet of the angel to worship Him. John is a mature Christian. He's an apostle. He's in his 80s. He knows God and God alone is the one to be worshipped, but he is so overwhelmed. See, this is just a good picture of our humanity, our finiteness, our frailness. Sometimes we just can't control it. He's overwhelmed. He tries to worship this angel. But the angel quickly said to him, don't do that. Stop it, is literally what it means. Stop. No. Don't do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours. Angels are fellow servants. I'm a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, other believers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Don't worship me. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And that last phrase, all that means is I'm giving you revelation that Jesus gave me. I'm just a vessel. Jesus is the one who de deserves the worship. What I'm giving you is just prophecy from him. So that's the celebration. Much to celebrate. So now let's look at the, re the revelation, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. Verse 11 through 16. And so after that long vision of so much to take in, of chapter 17 and 18 and the beginning of 19, and John's fallen over and he's probably breathing heavy and he needs a break. Who know long? We don't know how long he got of a break. But then he gets another vision. Here it is, starting at verse 11. And I saw heaven open. I think the last time he saw that, uh, he saw tremendous vision in verse 12, or chapter 12. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse in heaven. And he who sat upon it, and the one sitting upon it, we don't need to guess who that is, he has many names. Some covenant theologians say, this is Titus and the Roman army. I'm not kidding you. And they came in 70 AD. This is not the second coming of Jesus Christ. No, no, it is the second coming of Jesus Christ. And the one sitting on the horse is Jesus. 
He's called faithful and true. In righteousness, he judges and wages war, just like all those prophecies we saw in the Old Testament. I didn't read the other 50 that I could have. Verse 12, his eyes are like a flame of fire. He is omniscient. It is piercing. He knows the innermost recesses of all that we think and do. That is Jesus in glory, as Peter testified after his resurrection in John 21, when Peter told Jesus, Lord, you know all things. Jesus knows everything now that he's in glory. He's omniscient once again, having received the glory he once had before the incarnation. So his eyes are like a flame of fire. Uh, In righteousness, he wages war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. His head are many diadems. They're countless. They're countless. He He rules and reigns over all. Satan was pictured earlier with seven crowns. The Antichrist was pictured earlier with ten crowns. Jesus, the Messiah, multitudinous, countless crowns. He is completely sovereign. That's what that means. And he has a name written on him which no one knows We don't know what that name is, so don't ask me. He has a name written on him, but it's his identity. I just think it means that, you know what? We're going to have a... Jesus became a real man, but he always remained infinite, almighty, eternal God somehow. He was the God-man. I don't understand that. That hurts my brain. He went back into heaven and was glorified, and right now in a physical body, he's still infinite, eternal, almighty God, and I don't know how that works. And because he's infinite... And we are finite. Did you know we will always be finite? That gap, that chasm cannot be bridged. The finite can never fully know the infinite God. There are things about Jesus, the Father and the Spirit, even when we are in heaven, that we, we, we won't know because we won't be infinite like God is infinite. We don't become gods when we get to heaven. We remain creatures. Maybe that's what this name is. It's something about Jesus that only the Father and the Spirit know about him. Always a reminder that he is the transcendent Holy One above us. We'll never be his equal. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood. There it is right out of Isaiah 63. And his name is called the Word of God. The Word, this is the only time in Scripture where Jesus is called the Word of God. The Word of God. He's called the Word in John 1, but here, the Word of God. Hebrews 4 talks about Scripture as the Word of God. Here, Jesus is the Word of God. That means he's the full revelation of the triune God on display in all of his attributes. The full revelation. Verse 14, in the armies which are in heaven. What armies? Are these angels? No. These armies that are in heaven coming out of heaven following Jesus on his white horse, they are clothed in fine linen, white and clean. We already saw what fine linen was in verse 8. The righteousness of the saints. These are believers. These are holy ones. If you're a Christian, this is you. This is me. Following Christ. This is glorious. Clothed in fine linen, white and clean. They were following him on his white horses. They were following him on white horses. So the saints have white horses. Uh, This was alluded to in Daniel chapter 7 with the saints or with the Son of Man. They come in glory to take over the kingdom. Colossians chapter 3 even refers to this, that when Christ comes and when he's revealed in glory, he will be revealed with his saints in glory. This is amazing. Do I believe these are real? I personally believe these are real horses. Well, horses don't fly. Well, these ones will. Mine will. Maybe yours won't, but mine will. There's no reason for me to to spiritualize this like probably most commentators that I read. I think Jesus is literally going to come out of heaven. I think he's literally going to have a physical body. I think he's literally going to have a robe dipped in blood. I think he's literally going to have armies behind him, and I'm going to be there. And I think these are heavenly, cool, supernatural flying horses. That is my opinion. I'm just taking the Bible at face value. If people want to mock me for taking the Bible literally, so be it. But I'm doing it in context. He's literally going to land in Jerusalem. There's literally going to be a war. His enemies are literal. They're going to be slaughtered, literally. People in Jerusalem are literally going to be relieved. Clothed in fine linen, on their white horses. Verse 15, and from the mouth, 
From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he might strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God Almighty, smashing his enemies like grapes when he lands. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. He is supreme. He is the only king. He slaughters the kings of the earth that remain. He slaughters the Antichrist. There are no other rulers on planet earth. He wipes out the nations. All the nations and the cities of the nations fall, we've already seen in the bold judgments. Jesus Christ takes over. This is where history is going. This is the goal. This is what we wait for. This is what we pray for. This is what we look forward to. This gives us encouragement, motivation, stability in life. This is what fills us with awe as we worship our God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. And when Jesus comes, he will reign not as a democratic leader. There will be no election. There's no voting Jesus is a monarch. He is the king, the only king. He's installed by God the Father. That's the election. He's elect by the Father and put in that role. He will reign for 1,000 years. There is no democracy. There's no democracy in the Bible. God makes no comments about democracy in the Bible. It's found nowhere. Christians try to spiritualize that at times. America is not a democracy. It's a republic with democratic elements to it. The only democracy that I find in the Bible is in Genesis 11, when the people of the earth gather together with a majority vote and decide, you know what, we're going to defy the Creator and we're going to build the Tower of Babel. That's a democracy. This is going to be a a monarch. Jesus is going to reign as king. It's going to be a benevolent dictatorship. We are not accustomed to that here in America, but that's, that's the way it is. That's the truth of world history. And that's the way it's going to be in the Bible. Yes, we will have vice regents, Jesus will. We will be those vice regents. But he's the king, a king and the only king. Verse 17, let's go on to now the devastation from when the, the glorious coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then John says, I saw an angel standing in the sun. He's prominent. The whole world can see him. He cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, and these are like vultures and birds of prey that come upon Dead carnage, and that's exactly what's going to happen. Come assemble for the great supper of God. This is in contrast to the blessed marriage feast of verse 9. This is the great supper of God. What is that? That's the aftermath of the war and the battle of Armageddon, where Jesus slaughters all of his enemies. All of his enemies without exception. All earth dwellers, all the kings of the earth, the only enemies that are not killed, and their lives are spared, is the Antichrist and the false prophet. Verse 18, So that they might eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of commanders, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and the flesh of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, both free and slaves, both small and great. Every enemy on planet Earth is slaughtered. Verse 19, And I saw the beast... That's the Antichrist and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against Jesus who sat on the horse and against his army. So there it is. They assemble. So the, the Antichrist assembles armies from the nations of the world. We know that from Psalm 2. We know that from 1714 in Revelation. We know that from Joel. We know that from Zechariah. We know that from Ezekiel 38 and 39. The nations of the world surround Jerusalem And the beast, the Antichrist, knows that the Messiah is coming. And he sees the Messiah coming, and he is ready for war. The beast, looking at Jesus, flying right towards him with the sword coming out of his mouth. What kind of battle is this going to be? Well, John tells us, not much. The beast and the kings assembled to make war against him who sat on the throne, or sat on the horse, and against his army. Verse 20, and the beast was seen. That's how it ends. Jesus comes down and he seizes, literally the beast is captured alive. And with him, the false prophet. You got a deadly snake, cut off its head. That's what happened here. The false prophet who performed miracles in the presence by which he deceived basically the whole world and take the mark of the beast and worshiped his image. And these two were thrown alive. There it is, they were not killed. Into the lake of fire that burns with brimstone. What's the lake of fire? The second death, eternal hell, Gehenna. Not Hades, temporary abode. This is eternal death. This is eternal hell. They are thrown in alive. And when they're in the lake of fire, they are still alive. They are still conscious. 
They are aware, they are in pain, they are in agony. Eventually they'll end up in a physical body that will be able to burn forever and ever and ever. That's how Jesus described eternal hell. God created eternal hell for the devil and his angels. It says the Gospels, but here, apparently the first two to be thrown in there are the Antichrist and the false prophet. Verse 21, and the rest of humanity, unbelievers, were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, Jesus Christ. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. And all I can say to all of that is hallelujah. Hallelujah. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. With that, let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for, again, the Lord's Day Sunday, the day that you rose from the dead. A tangible reminder reminder for us physical human beings that we have cause to celebrate. Your resurrection was a, a real historical event. You truly ascended into heaven. You actually said that you would return in the same way that you left, in the same place that you left. Every time we celebrate communion, we are looking forward to your second coming. We thank you, Lord, that this is how world history is going to end. A blessed, glorious event. You will have no competitors. Truth will reign. Righteousness will reign. Your saints will live with you in glory. God, we look forward to that. And we know from next week, as we look at Revelation 20, this will continue for generations, even for a thousand years. We worship you, and we say hallelujah to you all in the name of Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.